Hello, welcome along to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast. We're here discussing all things health and NHS with a political twist. Welcome back. I'm Steve Bryan. I'm the MP for Winchester in Hampshire. I'm chair of the Health and Social Care Select Committee in the House of Commons. Good morning. I'm Helen Stokes Lampard. I'm a GP in the Midlands, Litchfield to be precise. And for a few hours more, I am chair of the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, but I finished my term of office later today, today being Thursday, the 6th of July, 2023, if you're listening after the event. Um, I've also got a few other hats, but let's leave it at that for this morning. So it's a big day for you, Helen. It is, Steve. It is. I've been chair of the Academy right through the pandemic. Um and but if these are fixed terms of office the day you start you know the day you're going to finish and so there's no surprise there and I finish by chairing my full council who are the most remarkable bunch of people you know talented bright intelligent generous compassionate wise so it's going to be hard saying goodbye sad to leave but maybe it's the right time you've already told me this morning not to say anything nice to you yeah, don't be sentimental because they've started sending sentimental messages. And I've warned them if they do that, I'm just going to cry and we'll have panderized for council, which is not my favourite look. Panderizing. Yeah. So, so yeah, as you, uh, as you may have seen, um, coming to the end of chapters is all the rage. Uh, and you've probably seen my, uh, my announcement in recent weeks that I, I won't be standing at the next general election in Winchester yeah. for the House of Commons. So ends of chapters all round, but then new beginnings, perhaps. Yeah, Ecclesiastes, for everything there is a season. And, uh, you know, it's time time to do other things. And uh, yep. there's, quite, there's quite a lot on um, on my website, um, stevebryan.com, where I've sort of set out some of the some of the reasons why, some of the things that I want to do. Uh, but what I will be doing is caring about chairing the health committee, looking after my constituents until the absolute last day of this parliament. And my love and passion for health and cancer and prevention will, will go on uh there are many many ways to serve is how i view it so so anyway um so it's right. great so Good last time you. on the podcast um last time on the pod Whoa. we had the wonderful matthew taylor didn't we from nhs confederation great. and um and he was great and he, he came and talked about nhs confed conference which had happened the week before um former downing street special advisor on health of course to tony blair and he just talked about a whole range of issues didn't he and prevention of illness and current nhs challenges and thanks to everyone who's been in touch about that i really like the way he gave a structure to the whole prevention landscape i think it, he's obviously done a bit quite a lot of thinking about it and sort of got his thoughts on paper and he just felt that people get a bit confused as to what we mean by prevention and and, and so i think that sort of that structure is really useful and so uh grateful to that we'll take that as a gift thank you matthew yeah, thanks, Matthew. Um, we'll see you soon. Um, if you enjoy this podcast, Prevention is the New Cure. It's available on all, all um, podcast, 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 darling, uh, podcast platforms, whichever <laughs> one you go to, Spotify, Apple, uh, they're all there. And please remember to like our show. Um, okay. <clears throat> now, it's a happy birthday. It is. It's a huge happy birthday. It's happy three quarters of a century birthday to the NHS this week. Indeed. Uh, and, you know, it's been a huge amount of interest in that. Obviously, loads of media, the workforce plan, which we're going to talk about properly uh, in today's session, came out just ahead of it. Big service in Westminster Abbey yesterday, Wednesday. Um, yeah, it's a big moment, right? It is a big, it is a big moment. And I think, so I was lucky enough to be in the Abbey along with it about 15,000 other people um, celebrating the, it was a service of Thanksgiving for the NHS, which I think is a really good way of framing it. Um, and there was a, certainly a celebratory tone uh, about what the NHS has achieved over the decades, um, a reminder of where we were before we had an NHS, 
and but also some realism about where we are at the moment and where we need to go and you know the sort of the the challenges we're facing right now um but how the phenomenal spirit of the people within the NHS keep it going keep delivering despite the pressures the frustrations and the challenges and the massive the inexorably rising demand for care that we're having because we we have all this amazing innovation and technology that we want to be able to apply for our patients. We know there is so much we can do for people, far more than we ever did before, preventing premature death and premature illness. But to do it takes a lot of people and a lot of resource. And um, yeah, Thanksgiving is a great way of describing it. But you know, what's interesting, and I've seen debate from former health secretary, um, Tony Blair has been out there talking about fundamental reform and mm. you know changing the structure and changing the, the the way the nhs is basically the foundation upon which is built and i mean look, i'm all for reform um investment and reform would be i guess the the lesson that blair would bring to this but what's still so special and maybe this is a bit uh, a bit trite to say this but what's still so special isn't it is the fact that it is free at the point of need yeah uh, regardless of ability to pay and you know those words uh, accurately or otherwise quoted are, are what it says in the in the legislation that created the NHS and as long as what's Nye Bevan say as long as the public support the NHS then then it will be there and I I don't get any sense from the public genuinely that they don't support that principle well, that's right. All the evidence uh, fits with that view, Steve. Um, there have been lots of surveys and research done, and there is no shaking in the public belief that the NHS is absolutely the right thing to do. The public are incredibly proud that we have a proper national health service and that it is uh, free at the point of need. But also the public do recognise that it's creaking in places. And I think that point that Nye Bevan made about the public believing in it is vital. If the public believe in it, they know it has to be funded and it's funded from general taxation. And there is also no evidence that any one other healthcare system is better than another, so long as they're all resourced at an appropriate sort of level. And that's the challenge. Um, and I guess the lessons for the future are about when things are tough uh, generally, um, don't cut funding for your health service because the ripples go far and wide, deep and wide, as it were. Um, but also it is important. So I guess going back to the point that you said that Tony Blair made, I would absolutely agree that we need to have difficult conversations. And for me, it's about what the NHS should and should not be doing, the, where, where the limits of care are, what are truly the NHSs, uh, but what belong to other parts of society and other parts of government to fix. And, you know, I'm pretty passionate about the influences, all those other social determinants of health and, of course, health inequalities, uh, you know, the quality of our housing, the quality of um our communities, our spaces. I mean, local government has a massive role here. And of course, when funding is tight, everyone feels the pinch, but the ripples often end up at the door of the NHS. So I want big conversations across all of society, not just tearing up the NHS and starting again. Let, let, let's work with what we've got, because what we've got is actually pretty amazing. But isn't it the case, I know it, I agree with all that, but is it not the case that you know, if you think about the original NHS, you know, for instance, it was the health and housing department, which is yeah. why, you know, we're passionate about housing as a determinant of poor health. Damp leads yep. to to all sorts of issues, disease. children, cardiovascular disease. Um, but then, you know, you, you look at the, the way that technology has moved, things that obviously could never have been imagined yeah. back in 75 years ago in genomics and the ability yeah. to basically predict ill health in incredibly clever ways. Um, science has moved us into a different place. And I suppose that's created 
new challenges for the health service in terms of embracing what is incredibly expensive technology but the savings that it has both most importantly of course in terms of people's health and suffering and that chair being filled at the Christmas table where it wouldn't have been Um, but the savings financially that that can bring to the NHS if we did genuinely prevent ill health absolutely vast aren't they it does it is absolutely well that's why we got got the podcast called prevention is the new cure because I think there is a real growing sense that we have absolutely have to work harder at preventing disease in the first place and whether that's primary prevention or secondary obviously as a GP I do a lot of both um you know people walking through the door and opportunistically trying to work out actually can we just check your blood pressure while we're here do you know let, let's pick up on some of those lifestyle things and nobody likes to be hectored or told off and most people say yeah yeah I know I should be losing weight doc I know I should be doing more exercise but sometimes having a healthcare professional take a moment and say yes you know it But I'm now saying to you that this is starting to adversely impact on your health. So take this as an extra prod. Take this as another incentive. We know that there are what we call teachable moments in healthcare. Somebody's listed for an operation, for example. Suddenly they have a jolt. We know that if you are fitter and as healthy as possible going in for surgery, your recovery will be so much better, fewer complications. And the complications of surgery and other illnesses have a massive cost on the NHS. They also have a massive cost for the individual and society. So there's real win-win stuff here. Of course, there's a lot of challenge about to get people like GPs or whoever in the community to do more of that stuff that needs more investment and more resource and more time there um, to save the money downstream and moving money around the NHS is notoriously difficult to do. Um, Mm. But that's perhaps for another time. Yeah. You are listening to the prevention is the new cure podcast. Thank you so much for choosing us. We know there's a lot of, uh, there's a lot of choice out there on the podcast platforms. Um, Thanks for choosing us. Okay, so we're going to talk about the most important thing of all in any organisation, which is people. And the NHS, of course, on Friday published its NHS long-term workforce plan, which we've talked about so many times here. And we've said that, you know, it's fabled, it's long awaited. And I said in the House of Commons on Monday when the Secretary of State made a statement that I think actually the government was right to resist constant calls from people like me to get on and publish this Um, because although that was meant in the right spirit I think actually getting it right was the most important thing and when you have four organizations Treasury, Number 10, Department, NHS England, four people in that marriage to get this out was a big big deal and my sense from talking to number 10 talking to to ministers is that they are above all incredibly relieved to have got this out and I have to say I think it's landed pretty well I mean I did a lot of media as you did and in fact Helen you and I did Channel 4 News together that was the first Um, and you even mentioned the podcast and uh, Christian Gura Murphy yeah thought you know can we edit that out but no because it was live when I mentioned the (laughs) podcast but as I said on there I think 40 42 different organisations ranging from Unison to the Academy have welcomed the workforce plan. So there's something good there. What are your initial reactions to seeing the workforce plan? 
So first of all, I'm going to pick up on your comment about the marriage of four. Um, I mean, that's one tempestuous marriage, you know, and there's a lot of counselling needed to keep that marriage going. But that's that's an aside. The workforce plan. Look, I'm hugely relieved. We've been, well, I've been, so I think we've been calling it the fabled workforce plan for the last six months or so, because it has been so long. It has been an elephant gestation. Um, but we've had a successful birth and the uh, the infant is doing very well, would be my view. Um the comment about 42 organisations putting out supportive quotes and commenting on it, I have to say, I've never seen such overkill when it comes to a press release and comments. I mean, scrolling through 42 comments was something, but it was a very strong statement that all these organisations desperately wanted the plan to be out there in the public domain. But let's be clear, none of us had seen all 151 pages of it when we made those quotes. We'd all been briefed, and in fairness, the briefings were, were fair and just uh, and, and straightforward. And none of us knew how much money was going to be associated with the plan. And I have to say, thank you to the Treasury, 2.4 billion over the next five years is a serious slug of extra money for the workforce. And, and when I look around at my college, obviously, most of the people I work with are medical royal colleges, and I work quite a lot with medical charities. And for the royal colleges, everyone's delighted it's here. There are some concerns I think we'll pick up on later about the retention part of it being a little bit light, a bit thin on the ground. Um, and I think there are some anxieties about some of the innovations about apprenticeships and shortening training. So perhaps we should pick up on those as well, because they're worth chewing over. So perhaps people understand where the facts are and where the unknowns are. OK, so the sort of themes, I suppose, maybe we should we should take them in there in these themes. So train. Yeah. Uh, train, retrain. And, grow the workforce. And grow the workforce, yeah. So double the number of medical school training places, which will take the total number up to 15,000 a year by 2031-32, with more medical school places in areas with the greatest shortages. Now, now this is, of course, what was called for by many people. Us? Um, yeah, at you. And the, the, and we've said this on this podcast at the opposition. Um, many, many commentators. That has come to pass. We had liaison committee this week, which, as you know, is where all select committee chairs questioned the prime minister. And I actually asked him about this line that says the first new medical school places will be available from September 2025. Yeah. Um, you know, I've spoken to medical schools have spoken to MPs in those areas who are frustrated because their schools are saying, look, we've got places that, that we could make available right now. There's no scaling up needed. We could do that right now for next September. The UCAS deadline is October the 13th for September 24 start. Yet we're not going to get start till September 25. The prime minister's argument was, well, you know, there's an awful lot to be done, getting ducks in a row, scaling it up, talking about the length of medical degrees, which we'll come on to. Um, but just in itself, in the essence, doubling the number of medical school training places that's a good thing, right? Oh, it's definitely a good thing. But let's just unpick it a little. I mean, doubling from seven and a half thousand, we're way above seven and a half thousand already. There had already been a commitment. So I think it was Conservative Party um, a conference in 2016, where Jeremy Hunt, who was then uh, Secretary of State for Health, committed to an extra 1500 places then. So that took us up 
from 6,000 to uh, six to the 7,500. And then we're on, of course, already to go further to 9,000. So this is the additional top up to 15. So there's already an incremental plan in place for increasing spaces. Um, but I, I do believe that the target to get to 10,000 by 2028 is achievable. It's the next big chunk that will require new medical schools to be developed. It's why it'll be 2030, 2031 by the time we get the full 15,000. But Yes, we've all been calling for it. It's an excellent idea. There's a few people out there a bit exasperated that the doubling headline isn't technically true from the baseline we're at at the moment. But that, to be honest, it's semantics. We're getting exactly what we've asked for, which is about 15,000 training places. I am blown away by the amazing young people I meet who want to study medicine by their energy, their passion, enthusiasm for taking on and it's actually a really tough training course and a tough career. Um, so I have no doubt we will fill those places. Um I think it's great. This one's a really it's interesting good one. on on no doubt on fill the places. I saw Steve Powers this week because he was in uh, he's the medical director of NHS mm. England. He was in a select committee talking about palliative care mm. um, and end of life care. And I and I saw him afterwards for a, for a cup of tea. And I said, you know, in in so many other parts of the workforce, you know, we talk about shortages and actually we can't find the people who want to do the jobs. Um, so you know, number of teacher training applications are way down this year in, uh, uh, um, at many of the training centers um but that isn't the case in wanting to be a doctor Definitely. which you know i mean I'm in a constituency like mine i've got a lot of doctors and a lot of children of doctors want to become doctors it's just yeah. very natural um you know and i often get contacted by constituents who say you know my son my daughter you know they're a straight a student but they can't get in because there's just not enough places so but, there isn't some... a shortage of people wanting to do it is there exactly some of them go to private medical schools in the uk but that's quite a few of them go abroad to study medicine and that creates some difficulties with getting back into the uk particularly since we've left the EU so the qualifications aren't automatically recognized in the same way so yeah it'll be wonderful to have more of our brilliant uh, own grown youngsters coming into medicine we'd still want really take away all the reliance of the NHS on colleagues who've been trained overseas. And goodness knows the NHS is hugely grateful to our overseas trained colleagues who have propped up the service and worked alongside us and delivered amazing care. But there is something more about the morals and ethics of this, about us as an affluent nation training our own. So, yeah. So then that comes on, that compatibility issue takes us on to this thing about the length of the medical degree. So you went to medical school. <clears throat> How long did you study for? So... Uh, apart from that fact, I took the odd sabbatical to do other fun stuff. And yeah. my core my core training as a medical student was five years. Right. Um, and so, you know, five years after I entered medical school, I walked out with that amazing qualification. And then I became a junior doctor. Nowadays, junior doctors, their first couple of years are called foundation doctors, foundation for two years, uh, doing a series of posts, which gives them increasing exposure, increasing responsibility. And then mostly people go on to what's called speciality training pathways and that's where you choose where you're going to specialize whether that is general surgery or general um, ophthalmology or uh, general practice or gynecology you you choose you get onto a training pathway and then you have upwards of three years in higher in speciality training so a gp would normally then be a minimum of three years after that point. so that's five years in med school and five years afterwards as the quickest route to become a fully qualified if you like a consultant gp so what is the proposal then that, that we would move to so the proposal is that we would explore and pilot condensing the five-year med the core medical student training program to nearer four years so there are some 
courses already where they're trying to contract it a bit. Uh, in the first couple of years uh, in medical school, you have full university holidays. So the first thing to do is contract some of those holidays and make the terms asynchronous. Now, I can imagine students groaning and throwing things at the radio right now because students are very tired by the time they come to their uh, big holidays and they do like, uh, you know, taking some time out to unwind. But in the later years in medical school, you don't get those anyway. So that's one thing. The other thing is the point of registration at the end of training. Uh, quite a lot of places bring that forward anyway and use the later stages as a proper apprenticeship on the ward getting experience and there's a bit of space there some say that the time spent on elective study could be shortened what however is incredibly difficult is that the medical curriculum is utterly enormous the amount that we expect medical students to learn to assimilate and to be able to um use and apply by the time they qualify is massive and i'm not hearing anyone volunteering to take much stuff out to the curriculum so i think it's going to be difficult to do this and still be sure that the, the junior doctors that we create at the end have the same level of competency and confidence to be on the wards and in the GP surgeries as they do now. So it'll have to be research and evidence very well before we commit. to. So, yeah. So the competency and patient safety is obviously got to be standard. But I mean, it says in the document, you know, that the move with the same established standards set by the GMC. So yes. presumably they're going to make some sort of medical licensing assessment. The GMC, who, by the way, you know, this is we talked about this uh, workforce plan having an independent verification. Uh, yeah, remember, that was the call. Quiet. That was the call from the select committee and yeah. it has gone a bit quiet. That is going to be done, I understand, by the GMC. Now, if they were to come out right. afterwards and say, we got a problem with this, I don't think they will because I think they've been very, very heavily involved in its drafting, but they they're going to do that for the record. Um, but yeah, so they're going to, we've got to make sure it meets the same established standards. But I, I, I sort of said on a bit of media, and you tell me if I'm wrong here, is that, you know, we accept a lot of international recruits obviously into the health service um and as you said we're, we're incredibly reliant on them and grateful to them but there are different level lengths of training courses training degrees in other parts of the other world yeah. and we accept them to come and work in our nhs and we don't say oh i don't want that person from uh, canada treating me because we actually do the shortest graduate we accept is a three-year graduate entry program from mcmaster in canada that taught very intensively and people will come and work in the nhs with that so it's as long as they meet those gmc standards yeah. i mean those are people those are of course people's Steve, who've done another relevant degree in advance. But no, I agree with you. We must we must be prepared to embrace the opportunities to change, um, embrace the opportunities to pilot, but also learn from things. And you're absolutely right. We are fortunate that we've got the GMC looking very closely at these things who will not let courses and curricula go ahead if the output, the, the you know, qualifications at the end are in any doubt at all. Can I use that to move us on to talk about apprentice training in uh, medicine? Because yeah. that's caused so, a bit of controversy. So the headline, the headline is provide 22% of all training for clinical staff through apprenticeship routes by yeah. 2032, up from just 7% today. Now, that is a big ambition, mm. but I think that's probably the right ambition, isn't it? I mean, you know, you often hear people, who, you know, older nurses who say, well, I, I learned on the job and of course in a cost of living crisis maybe more people will be keen to do that i'm a massive fan of modern apprenticeships so i'm married to an engineer and engineering a professional engineering has taken on degree apprentice routes into the profession for quite a few years and are coming through highly successfully um 
I know you know, people think of apprenticeships as sort of very practical things, but you know, as a doctor, as a, in your senior part of your training, you learn exactly through apprenticeship. You do, you learn by doing on the job. So that is what senior higher training is all about anyway. So it is a logical expansion to bring that uh, to the undergraduate thing. But I think there've been a lot of myths out there. So when this was first raised with the Academy of Medical Royal Colleges, must be at least 18 months ago now, immediately we started getting trainees and trainers quite anxious about it, about would this be a degradation in quality? And of course it's not, because the output of a medical degree apprenticeship is exactly the same output as if you go through a conventional university medical degree, because it's all university controlled, university degree at the end of it, same exams, same standards, and post, you know, once you get on into your next clinical jobs, whichever your training route, it would, it would be irrelevant. You'll be a doctor. However, apprentices will take um, have a modest salary, be doing a service work commitment whilst they train, um, and, and but they won't have to pay university fees, and they'll have to have a almost certainly have to have a relevant medical a relevant degree of some sort or a previous qualification. So we would imagine a lot of people you might you know paramedic somebody trained as a paramedic did it for a while realized actually what they really wanted to be was a doctor goes into the program earn while they learn don't build up as much debt because they've already got a house and family and kids come out as a doctor alongside other doctors I mean I think there's a lot in it but like everything else got to be piloted and there are three universities ready to launch with this but they've got to go through the full regulatory hurdles and I'm not sure that's I think people might be a bit naive as to how long that's going to take. So with your world, obviously you used to run the Royal College GPs, you know, it says in here, increase the number of GP training places by 50%, uh, by, again, by 32. Um, it says under the supervision of fully fully qualified GP, all foundation doctors, so junior doctors, um, can have at least one four-month placement in general practice. So, you know, we often talk about primary prevention, right, and the shift from the money that's spent in acute care, secondary care to primary care. And that's mm -hmm. where the workforce can um, really move the dial on prevention um, and population health management. This does seem to be happening because every time I go and see GPs, this is what they say to me. We always feel we always feel that the money goes elsewhere. Do you get the sense from GP land that they feel the love? Mm. 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 That's a big mixed, one. mixed. Yeah. I think I think people have seen money moving, um, but money is often targeted on initiatives, which some GPs are mystified by. Um, but yeah, I ha you know, the additional role schemes in general practice where we've got health coaches and social prescribing link workers and care coordinators has been fantastically helpful. So the expansion of all those roles is great, but actually the core increase, the number of people training to be a GP is absolutely what's needed. So I'm delighted to see this. In fact, general practice is the only speciality that has seen a specific mention of the proportion of it increase. There is commitment to increasing the numbers of doctors more widely, but they haven't specified how many of those will be anaesthetists, how many will be pathologists, for example. So all that's to be worked out. And the one, really important thing about this plan is that it's going to be iterative it is going this is the first of a series of plans hopefully every two years every two years <clears throat> yeah that is good that's yeah really no I, I can hear the sigh from downing street as you said that. <laughs> <laughs> and i think it's i think it is right though that they're not I, I i think it's good that they've specified on gps i think it's right actually that they haven't specified on each discipline um because because technology where we started the conversation is moving so fast ai's involvement in you know radiography for instance i think it is it is right that we don't 
tie the system down with commitments on specific numbers because at the end of the, this is the nhs's plan and they've got to, as you say they've got to it's update deliberate. it ongoing they got to deliver it and they got to deliver it in a practical way that does what's needed at the front line so should we talk about retain then yeah because um, we, we've I done mean, a bit of reform and training differently as part of train haven't we we've jumped around yeah and that's but that you know isn't that interesting because you know exp- expand the dentistry training places by 40 percent comes into train but that is also about retain because if you're Absolutely. a dentist and you don't see people coming in if you're a doctor and you don't see new people coming in you don't feel like staying because you feel that the burden falls on you but you know i mean the plan's pretty ambitious on this it talks about the nhs people promise it talks about the nhs pension scheme the emeritus doctor scheme yeah um a tie-in period for dentists who are going to have to spend a minimum proportion of their time delivering nhs care that, that one's um, controversial i mean very controversial my understanding is that it was discussed actually at cabinet level as to whether they should include a tie-in period for new doctors as well and yeah. that was discounted you probably think that was the right decision I do, actually. I, I, I'm so much more a fan of carrots than I am sticks. And the problem with presenting something like this, is it sounds like a great big stick. Whereas, you know, we use the framing golden handcuffs, you know, to, to keep people linked to a role after the state has paid for them. You know, if somebody would asked me for a suggestion, I would have said that the way to be doing it, the carrot, if you like, might have been to say, look, we'll pay your university fees if you commit to staying with the NHS for X number of years, you know doing it that way around rather than doing the oh and by the way dentist you're stuck i mean because that but that might happen because they're gonna i think they'll they'll, they'll consult on the tie-in period so you know that might be well an idea that comes through i mean i think you you've just floated it there well, yeah, you heard it here first, but recruits versus conscript. It's a no brainer to me. You know, you want people to do things because they want to not to be forced to. But is the fact that now I sort of said this on on various media outlets, and I do genuinely believe this, um, is the fact that there is now a long-term workforce plan, is that a factor in retention? Because, you know, when you hear about all the industrial disputes that are going on, yes, money is obviously a big part of it, but it's not the only part of it. We talked about this many times. Yeah, we have. It's about working conditions. It's about the pressure of the workload. If you can see a plan, you can see the cavalry on the hill. You can. Doesn't that help with retention? Or am I being naive? I don't think it's naive. I think... It's, I mean, it's very complex when people, by the time people have made the decision to go, the decision is very complex and embedded, but certainly having the cavalry, knowing it's going to get better really does help. I mean, knowing that the pension stuff is going to improve is helpful. Knowing that this support with childcare or things are going to improve there, it all helps people. And I think it's the, what's it, it's the, the aggregation of marginal gains. Uh, they may not feel marginal to treasury, but all the little bits add up to a po- more positive approach overall. And that is really important. So yeah, I think, I think it all will help, Steve. Yeah. I mean, some have said that they thought the retain bit was probably the weakest chunk of, of the three sections of this plan. And I think the lack of specificity is difficult because different parts of the system, you know, what will retain our porters or our admin staff will be different from what re- helps retain our nursing colleagues. So I, I kind of get that. But I think what I'd love to see is quite a lot of energy going into this space over the coming months and years. I mean, I was delighted to see the Emeritus Doctors Scheme, where recently retired consultants will have the option to offer their help and support to the service. And I think that's a, that's a great idea, because some people don't want to retire completely. They want to do a little bit of the service. Um, and we saw that in COVID in abundance. So it's perhaps retaining that COVID spirit. 
Yeah, I, I said in the House on Monday as well, with regards to reten retention of staff, you know, look, we have to, un I think we do have to understand here that, you know, this is not all down to government and it's not all down to NHS England. You know, when you talk about a trust, for instance, you know, a trust is the direct employer of its staff and its colleagues and therefore you know they 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 have responsibilities around retention and there's stuff in the plan here about you know a conversation every year about their professional development about their pension planning about their career development that sounds fantastic and obviously many private sector organizations aim for that and fail i'm yeah. skeptical how on earth that is deliverable in a health service that employs 1.4 million people but a health service that employs 1.4 million people has so many structures and layers within it. And people should be having professional development and supportive conversations with line managers every year. I mean, I think that's, I think it's, I think it's more doable, Steve. Hey, yeah. I'm conscious we've been chatting about this for ages. Do you think we should uh, take a break? I think we should take a break. Welcome back. You're still listening to the Prevention is the New Cure podcast with myself, Steve Bryan and Dr. Helen Stokes-Lampard. We are no guests today because we're just discussing the long-term workforce plan. We've been talking about uh, training more doctors and nurses, dentists. Uh, we've been talking about retaining staff in the NHS. Just touching on the whole reform agenda mm. and looking at threats to the to mm. deliver deliverability of this plan. Um, obviously, there is a... Um, election next year potentially a change of government i think it's unlikely uh not least because the labor party said that this was their plan um but um, we'll talk about that with west not street a bad endorsement actually no well i thought so but we'll talk about that with street and shadow health sector when he comes and joins us um hopefully in the next few weeks one of the threats to this is that something that's sort of tucked away here is that there is a productivity assumption mm. of around of up to two percent Mm -hmm. uh, in here which is needed to make the sums add up and to yeah. make the projections add up I think that is a challenge because the NHS has never achieved that kind of productivity gear change I think that's a challenge for the plan Helen yeah it is a challenge for the plan I mean you know there's loads of things that are coming down the line that should help productivity I mean obviously technology and 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 IT are, are always touted as one of them. The problem is that most technological innovations slow things down for a while before they're properly embedded. I think we're quite bad in the NHS at recognising and factoring that that delay before you get the benefit um, element. Um, we're not brilliant about cascading learning and teaching. We sort of throw new tech and things in and sort of teach one or two people and expect the knowledge to get cascaded without factoring that into the system. However, um, there is so many things that will save so much time. When I look at my working life as a GP, I spend so much time chasing information, having challenges communicating with my colleagues in secondary care because we're on completely different computer systems and I can't access results. They can't see what I've been to, doing to the patient. I have no idea what drugs the patient was discharged on from some hospitals until in some cases I get a paper letter, you know, waiting on Royal Mail to deliver a letter, which has been manually typed by a secretary in a hospital. Come on, in this day and age. So 100%. So the productivity is is one challenge on the risk register of this. The yeah. technology and Select yeah. Committee actually last week published a big report on on digitalization of the NHS, which which listeners to this may be interested in. The other the other challenge, and I put it in those terms, is is what we're all about, which is prevention, which is yeah. demand versus supply. You know, it says here in the plan, rising demographic pressures and a changing burden of disease are increasing demand for NHS services. Over the next 15 years, the population of England is projected to increase by 4.2%. But 
the number of people aged over 85 will grow by 55%. Now, you don't need to be a genius or an economist, of which I'm neither, to see that that prevents challenges for for a health service. And, you know, we are going to have to get better about reducing that demand because then it doesn't matter how many people you've got, doesn't matter how much money you've got or how many doctors and nurses you've got, if demand continues to increase at this rate, this system falls over, doesn't it? It does, um, which is why it's so important to have a plan that lays this out so clearly. At least we're now, in a sense, on the same 151 pages um, in terms of where we're at, what the challenges are, and how we might collectively work together to fix them. And we've got to be clear. It's easy to say, like, this is NHS England's plan. They've got to crack on and fix this. This is a this is a plan that all of society's got a part to play in fixing. I think back to our prevention agenda, um, this is about empowering people as well. And this is not just a patronizing health service which says to people preachy preachy you do this you do that it's about a come on this is your health let's help you live your best life let's help you be your best person and let's help you prevent disease but you've got to take some of the initiative here as well yeah so what we can what everyone can agree on this is a big moment for the nhs it's a very big moment Uh, it's a big moment for patients and um and for constituents of of mine and so you know the committee this cross-party committee that i lead uh we're going to be talking to secretary of state who by the way has agreed to come on the pod uh we'll talk to to his shadow as i said and we'll be plowing through as a select committee and no doubt we'll talk about all these issues a bit more uh but now it is time for this pod surgery it is open. Now, number of people have been in touch about various different things, including uh, this message we had from Dr. Robert Mann. Dear Stephen Helen, would be great to see a physical activity episode of At Prevention Pod that explores the Royal College General Practice Active Practice Charter and things like park run initiatives. Now, former head of the RCGP. What is the Active Practice Charter? I know what Parkrun is. Um, Good heavens if I was to do that. Um, But what is the Active Practice Charter and physical activity episode? That sounds like a good idea. Well, physical activity episode is a no-brainer, isn't it? I think that'd be great to do that. We'll get somebody on who wants to sort of focus on that space because we touch on physical activity almost every episode, don't we? Um, Active Practice Charter sort of does what it says on the tin, really. Um, A sign-up scheme for practices to demonstrate their commitment to the physical activity agenda. RCGP took on a partnership with a park run lot. Oh, my gosh, it was in my time as chair of the GPs about 2016, I think, perhaps 2017. Um, And I certainly, I went along to a great park run down in Land's End end or the Penzance one um, which was great um, but fantastic initiative way of getting people out there if you don't know what parkrun is look it up if you're a GP surgery um, interested in the active practice charter easy free to sign up to on the RCGP website yeah and linked to that we on the select committee as we all know are doing a big prevention inquiry we've got 10 different work streams one of which is vaccination which we're just now concluding um the first one we've done the second one which we start next week is on healthy places and that involves issues around healthy homes healthy workplaces and the whole activity active agenda so um dr man will be interested in that we have uh chris boardman a bit of a hero of mine uh obviously olympic cyclist uh champion uh will be coming in to uh, among others, to talk to us about that. Steve, can I just pick up on one bit of news uh, that's really hit the media this week about the presenter Fiona Phillips, who's recently been diagnosed with Alzheimer's disease. Now, she's only 62 years of age. She's Lesser, very young yeah. for that diagnosis. Um, so really hard for the, her, for her family. Um, 
we talk about prevention. There's a lot of confusion for people about dementias and prevention. Some There are certainly some elements of dementia that are preventable. I don't think in Fiona's case, anything would have made a difference because she's got a very strong family history is what we understand. But they reckon that good lifestyle measures can produce, can delay and reduce stop about a third of cases of dementia and that's all the cardiovascular disease prevention things that we know so well like stopping smoking keeping your alcohol reduced healthy diet exercise and so on but also some ones you might not think about so if you have hearing loss addressing it getting assessed and getting hearing aids early because you become more isolated when your hearing goes um, treating depression and um, helping people with their mood and loneliness and social isolation, which are things that I have spent quite a lot of time campaigning and working on because loneliness and social isolation are as bad for your health as smoking in terms of the adverse outcomes in many ways, not, in, not for everything, but um, yeah. Oh, all, bless all her. Yeah, well, thanks for mentioning her. And we, we wish Fiona and her family well. It's been pretty Absolutely. brave of her to talk the way she has about it. Yeah. Um, so, um, do you want a Monty update, my oh, my, yes. my puppy? Well, Mon Monty and Gladstone to wrap up. Mon well, Mon Monty is a, a four-year-old black Labrador um, who didn't come to Glastonbury with me a couple of weeks ago. Uh, no dogs allowed. Uh, I, I, but yeah, yeah, I know you were very jealous. I did see Guns N' Roses, uh, best oh. gig of my life. I was right down the front like an 18-year-old. Um, felt like an 80-year-old by the time I finished. Um, but I was right down the front for that best gig I'd been to uh, until Sunday night when I saw Elton John, who was absolutely extraordinary. And oh. I I wouldn't count myself as a massive Elton John fan, but I saw him at the O2 a few months ago and I thought he was good. And I saw him, I mean, honestly, they always, they say, the thing about a gig at a festival, no fillers, all killers. And uh, he just produced, you know, one of the great uh, festival performances of all time, just one after the other. Just awesome. I'm, I'm, I'm so envious in the nicest possible way. I'm really glad you were there. A few yeah. people I know have been and gosh, what an uplifting experience. It was great. And and Monty, who didn't come to Glastonbury, uh, I am now uh, off to have a very stern word with Monty, uh, Dr. Helen, because during the podcast, he has bought four apples um, from the garden and placed them at the feet of my chair. Um, he's taking apples off the tree in the garden and then tosses them around. Um, he sometimes has a nibble at one, which then leads to, well, I'll let your imagination... Adverse gastrointestinal complications. Yeah, acidic apples do to a small dog's tummy um and yeah so he's bought a few to drop them at my feet so is i'm it, about to go and have words is it his way of telling me to keep the doctor away steve i just you know i don't know um what is in his mind helen but uh what is at my feet Play. are a load of apples <laughs> uh, right now so yeah don't trip when you stand up then steve uh, exactly uh anyway look, it's been great um we've given a little tease there as to some of the guests that are coming on in future weeks you can find us on social media uh is the new cure twitter facebook uh we're there uh email us podcast at stevebryan.com with your ideas for future pod surgery um time flies doesn't it we've been going for 40 yes. minutes and uh we've probably barely touched the surface but good to chew through the workforce plan um enjoy your last day thanks steve look after yourself and we'll see you soon thanks for all you've done on this one and we'll see you on the next pod bless you